It is 9.30 on this Sunday morning. Time for the live broadcast from St. Paul Lutheran Church in De Pere with this morning's Bible study. This morning, we are continuing our series here in this Bible class of taking a look at the scripture lessons which we will be having in church next Sunday. Not today, but the following Sunday. And with a caveat here also that we at St. Paul's are actually right in the middle of a special four-part sermon series uh, in in observance of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We had grace alone last week. We have scripture alone this week. Next week will be Christ alone or Solus Christus. And those are the lessons we're going to be looking at today. And then finally, we will finish off the last... Uh, Sunday in August with faith alone. So we are in the midst of this series, and today you will notice that the Old Testament and the Gospel lessons are the same that will be in church next Sunday in the three-year assigned series of readings, but the Epistle lesson is different, and I'll, I'll just point that out. They all fit together, though, very nicely. So with that as a bit of introduction, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your life-giving and life-sustaining word to us, where you speak to us about forgiveness and everlasting life, and point us to the word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Be with us today as we look at the Reformation in particular, but specifically, at your word, which again was uncovered by Martin Luther to reveal Jesus Christ and Christ alone as the way to forgiveness and everlasting life. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us and bless us to that end, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I've said before in this class, when you come into church on Sunday morning and you wonder what might be the connecting thread or theme that goes through the readings. And remember, usually the Old Testament and the Gospel lessons are the ones that will have that thread or that theme running through them. You can certainly read those lessons, first of all, and on some Sundays it's very apparent what the uh, general theme is, or the main theme, I should say. But another uh, pointer would be to actually go to the collect, collect of the day which is that prayer that usually is right before the scripture readings, uh, right after the confession, absolution, and so on, and right before the scripture readings, we have this prayer called a collect. And as it describes, it does a good job usually of collecting together the main theme, or sometimes more than one, uh, theme for a given Sunday. Now, we're going to be seeing today that that main theme, as is no surprise, at the top of your sheet is Christ alone, or solus Christus, the third of the four solas for the Reformation. So we'll see that actually in all three of our lessons, because we changed the epistle lesson so that it also reflects that theme. Let's uh, look at the collect first of all then, for those who are here in front of me, and Those listening on the radio will read it out loud. Almighty and most merciful God, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to seek and save the lost. Graciously open our ears and our hearts to, here we go, hear his call 
and follow him by faith. So again, the focus is on Christ, hearing him, following him. What's the result? That we may feast with him forever in his kingdom. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And we, of course, are when we feast with him in his kingdom, we're thinking about uh, drawing attention to there that everlasting marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which will have no end. Okay? So, that is the main theme, you might say, coming up for next Sunday, that it is Christ alone. Help us to hear him, follow him. We're going to be looking at, uh, again, the old, both the Old Testament and the Gospel lesson in particular also ask us the question, is Christ the Savior for the Jews alone or for Jews and Gentiles and all people? Now, we know the answer to that, of course, but we will see it portrayed beautifully in the Old Testament lesson and see that it was always God's plan to save all people. Even though the covenant was made through Abraham, the promise came to Abraham and to his descendants, it was always God's plan to save all people. Okay? Now, let's take a look at the Old Testament lesson that we have here. Isaiah 56, verses 1 and 6 through 8. And uh, as happens sometimes, they cut out some verses uh, in between. But uh, that, that kind of keeps the flow going, I guess, a little bit easier for us to read. Let's read through it first, and then we'll go back and take it apart. Isaiah 56, starting in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. All right, let's go back to verse 1. Who wrote Isaiah 56, verse 1? Isaiah. This, this, this is a deceptively simple question. But does Isaiah start it by saying, this is the word of Isaiah? I just point this out because oftentimes we glide over this. And we talk about, this ties into what Pastor Smith was preaching about today, that this is the very word or words of God to us. This is not just Isaiah's opinion or his thoughts on any particular subject. And so often we just glide over that in the Old Testament that this is God's word. Thus says the Lord, okay? And then he goes on to say, keep justice, or it can be, it can be translated guard justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. We've got righteousness there in one verse going in two different directions. The easier one is the second one, 
my righteousness will be revealed. He says, soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Now, what is he talking about there? What day is he talking about there when he says, soon my salvation will be revealed or made known and my righteousness be revealed? Yeah, we'd say that ultimately this points ahead to the coming of Christ. And we could say both the first time and the last time, right? Christ is, in one sense, uh, the one who comes and brings God's righteousness. So there's that uh, aspect of it. And we call this, uh, in, in our sense, we call this our own passive righteousness. Do we do anything to get Christ's righteousness put on us? No. It is, uh, as we were talking about uh, last week, it is by grace alone, undeserved, unmerited. We don't do anything to get it. So that is kind of passive righteousness. God creates faith in me. I don't create it myself, not because of who I am, not because of what I've done. It's just given to me, okay? So that is the passive righteousness that is going to be revealed. But notice in the first uh, uh lines there, what does it mean to do righteousness, to actually do righteousness? That is active righteousness. What does it mean to do righteousness? Okay, keeping God's law, his will. In other words, doing what is righteous, right, in, in terms of the world. Now, we call that an active righteousness. That's something that we, who have already been called to be God's people, who have already been made righteous by God, actually do in the world, okay? Now let me ask you this. Can someone who is a non-Christian, in fact, an atheist, let's just take a complete, total atheist, do things in the world that are good and pleasing to men and uh, praiseworthy? Absolutely, absolutely. We see it happen every day, right? Uh, someone can go way out of their way to help someone else, and they're not a Christian. They're not doing it because they are a Christian. They're simply doing it to help someone else. We call that, as Lutherans, we call that a civic righteousness or something we can all do. People can all do this and do day in, day out. But the difference is, does this help them in any way with their salvation, with their standing with God? No. So let's say somebody gives a million dollars to a charity. Well, I'm not going to criticize that as, well, you know, they're not a believer and they gave a million dollars to a charity. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to criticize them for that. That's certainly praiseworthy amongst men. They have their reward, as Jesus says, right? But if they are thinking that by doing that, somehow that's going to tip the scales and outweigh a lot of sin that they've done, uh-uh. That doesn't cut it. That righteousness that we get from God, that second one that's mentioned, is a passive righteousness. I don't do anything to get that. In fact, it's in spite of my sins that I get that one, okay? But notice here, and I wonder sometimes, this is maybe more for you to think about and, and just your opinion, but do we stress in Lutheran churches that first one as often as we should or as hard as we should sometimes? We're always very careful when we walk that line, because we don't want anybody to think that we're preaching that if I do good things, I'm going to make my or help myself with my righteousness with God. But on the other hand, maybe we don't stress it as much as we should. You know that that uh, 
Pastor Smith in his sermon today had a great example of, of just that. Well, those of you who were at the 8 o'clock, what did he challenge all of us to do at the end of the sermon? Read the Bible. Right. So that's doing. That's a, for those of you who go back to your confirmation uh, uh, times, what use of the law is that? Third use of the law, right? The guide. Where I go and I say, well, what is, now that I'm a Christian, what do I know, uh, what is pleasing to God? How should I conduct my life? That's third use of the law that he gave us today. So that's a great example of that, okay? All right, so this God says to his people, notice there verse 6, who are the foreigners? Who are Jew? Who are the foreigners? Yeah, any non-Jew, any Gentile. They're, they're referred to as foreigners, okay? Uh, and notice there, not just any foreigners, but those who join themselves to the Lord. And so there's a tip-off right there that Gentiles are going to be converted, that they are going to... Now, joining themselves, we've got to be careful here. It's not that they, you know, do this on their own. God, through the Holy Spirit, works the same faith in them as, as he does in us. But those converts, and the Jews had converts to Judaism, but also in the New Testament we have... Jews who are converts to Christianity, and some of those are former Gentiles as well. So it gets to be a little bit confusing. But here, let's just talk Gentiles and Jews. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, notice what they're going to do. They're going to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant. Now, Notice here, if you look at these descriptions of what they're going to do, we've got joining themselves to the Lord is kind of the first commandment, right? Have no other gods before him. Where do you see the second commandment? It comes right after that. Who do what? Love the name of the Lord, right? Second commandment should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Anybody see the third commandment? They what? They... Keep the Sabbath and don't profane it. So there are four characteristics listed there of these Gentiles who are going to be converted to, uh, to Yahweh to follow the true God. They're going to join themselves to the Lord. They're going to minister to him, which they're going to actually be priests. We won't, we won't look this up, but in Isaiah 66, verse 21, Gentiles, God says he will bring Gentiles also to be like Levites and priests. And serve. And that was a radical thought for any Jew. Okay? And then uh, they're going to love the name of the Lord, be his servants, keep the Sabbath and not profane it, hold fast my covenant. Okay? So those are the four characteristics. And so you get the idea here these Gentiles are going to come. Now, notice what God says here in verse 7. These. Now, who's the these? These Gentiles that are coming in. Will these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Notice God is going to bring these Gentiles, and where is his holy mountain? Jerusalem, Mount Zion. In the Old Testament, the false gods, first of all, would be worshipped in what were called high places which is exactly what they're described as. They're mountain sites. And I don't know if the thinking was 
that, you know, you're up high, so you must be closer. If God's up there somewhere, you know, I'm closer to him up here a couple thousand feet than I am down, down below. Maybe that was behind it. I have no idea. But they, they worshiped false gods at high places. The true God makes Mount Zion his holy mountain, another just shorthand for Jerusalem, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Now, let's stop there for a second and not just glide over that. These Gentiles are not only going to come to Jerusalem, but where else are they going to be? God's going to make them joyful where? In the temple, uh, in the temple courts. And uh, the Old Testament temple, you had different courts. You had one for the Gentiles that was uh, the furthest away. Then you had the court of the women for the uh, Jewish women. Then you had the, what was called the court of the men. And each one of these was a step or steps closer to the holy of holies or the holy place than the most holy place. And so here again to a Jew that, that they're going to be allowed in the temple area is a radical thing. And we'll look at even further uh, what Jesus said about this. Uh, notice their, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. So what is God going to accept from these Gentiles also? Their sacrifices. They're going to be able to sacrifice just like the Jews are. Okay? Then he goes on, My house shall be called a house of prayer for whom? All peoples. All peoples. Okay? Not just the exclusive prayer and sacrificing place for Jews but for all people, okay? Now, um, I want to have you just keep your finger here, and, uh, well, let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. Just keep your finger where we're at, or you've got a sheet, that's fine, but if you're in the Bible. 1 Kings 8, and I want to show you what happened at the actual dedication of the temple. So we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 8. And this is Solomon's prayer when he is dedicating the temple. And we want to look specifically at uh, verses 41 through 43. 41 through 43 of 1 Kings 8. Now, again, this is when the temple is being dedicated. This is the first temple, Solomon's temple. Okay? So look at what he, he prays here to God. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So Solomon here is acknowledging, he's not saying if. Notice there it starts off, when a foreigner comes. This is not a, well, maybe this will happen. If it ever does, please listen. No, when the foreigners come. And notice what's going to bring them, the name of the Lord being known throughout other areas. They're going to come. 
They're going to come to that temple. And Solomon's prayer here is that when these foreigners come and they pray, what does he ask God to do? Hear their prayer and answer their prayer, right? So here's just one example right when the temple is dedicated. Now, we won't go back and look at it for time reasons, but if we go way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham, okay, and says, go off to a land that I'm going to show you. I will make your descendants as great as the stars in the sky or the sand on the beach, uh, and, and I'll make your name great. And then later on, he's going to tell him, going to give you a land and so on. But there's one line. By you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, how is it that through Abraham, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed? Who's going to be the descendant of Abraham? Christ, right. And so you go way back to Genesis 12, and you can see that from, from the you know, earliest of, of this whole agreement between God and man, it was always God's plan to, to save not just a particular race of people, but all people, right? And we know that from other places in the scriptures that God desires that no one should perish, right? but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, um, notice there uh, in verse 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Remember a time that Jesus quoted that? My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Okay? Now, here's the deal. Uh, for the Passover... It used to be that the animals for the Passover, you know, you, people would come to Jerusalem to c celebrate the Passover. And you, as we know, the Passover, a household has to have not just the lamb that was, uh, you know, one, one foot in the grave and was going to go anyway, but a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, right? So you're coming a long way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. You're traveling a long way. And uh, just so happens that for convenience sake, they had pre-approved uh, animals that you could buy. I think you probably paid a little bit more for those, right? That's like the gas station right next to the interstate. It's always, always a little bit higher, right? Going to town, it's a dime cheaper a gallon. So they got this great thing going. And right when Jesus came, <clears throat> uh, it was reported that Caiaphas, uh, just shortly before, had moved the sale of these pre-approved animals for sacrifice from the Kidron Valley, which is the valley that runs, a narrow valley. It runs between the uh, Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. He had moved it from there, again for convenience, into the court of the Gentiles. Right? Oh, what's wrong with that? We'll put it in the court of Gentiles. Who cares? That was the attitude. And Jesus turns the tables over and clears the place and says, my house shall be a house of prayer and you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting this verse right here. See, this is what was going on. That was the only place the Gentiles could come and pray and, and, and sacrifice and, and give their sacrifices. And they had been pushed out and Jesus reacts violently to that kind of, uh, you know, pushing, pushing them aside, pushing them as if they don't matter, right? 
So you'll see that again. By the way, that's in Luke 19, if you ever want to look that up. Uh, 46 is where he, he uh, is talking about this. Uh, now, notice there, it ends up in verse 8. I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Okay? Who are the others that God is going to gather? Yeah, Gentiles as well, right? So it is as clear as can be, and there are many other places we could look in the Old Testament to see that it, it seems to us anyway <laughs> that it's as clear as it can be that God is not an exclusive God for the Jews, but is, uh, he wants his, his people, the Jews, to be a light to the nations, to draw people to him. Okay? All right. So that's the Old Testament lesson. And we see there, again, clearly coming through this whole idea of God wanting to save all people. Okay? Now, I'm going to take these out of order. Let's turn to... The gospel lesson, Matthew 15, that's on the sheet, uh, the last lesson I have listed on the sheet. If you don't have a sheet, the Bibles, Matthew 15, we're going to start at verse 21. This is a very interesting encounter that Jesus has with a Canaanite woman. Okay, so Matthew 15, starting at verse 21. And I'll just, we'll just read it through, and then we'll go back and again take it apart. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Okay, let's go back and kind of take this apart. So Jesus, it says there, went away from there. For the there is Galilee. He had been in Galilee, which is the, uh, little, you know, north, north certainly of Jerusalem, north of that area. The Sea of Galilee is right in that territory. He's been up there. Now it says... He goes into, withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, what Matthew doesn't tell you there is this is Gentile country he's going into. All right? He's done it before. In Mark 4, he went off in the other direction. This, where he's going here is, well, as you're looking at me, it's north and west of Galilee. He's already been east of Galilee in some Gentile territory there as well, the land of the Gerizines, and he casts a demon out of a, a guy there. But now he goes off into another Gentile territory, okay? And he says, uh, it says here, uh, how does, how does uh, Matthew uh, kind of signal that, uh, pay attention here. Start at verse 22, what does he say? Behold, and behold. Whenever you see behold, that means pay attention. Something big is going to happen here, right? So, and behold. We should, maybe we should do that in sermons. Maybe say, and behold. Uh, wake up. Uh, 
a Canaanite woman. Now, she's not only a Gentile, she is a Canaanite. Now, the Canaanites in the Old Testament, they have a great relationship with God's people in the Old Testament, just like peas and carrots, to quote Forrest Gump. No. In fact, God told his people to do, uh, told his people to do what with the Canaanites? Wipe them out. Because, not just to be mean and cruel, but why? What was the danger? If you don't wipe them out and start intermarrying with the Canaanites, come the Canaanite gods, the false gods. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. And God's people, you know, engage in idolatry right along with the Canaanites. In fact, they were, we've seen inscriptions where uh, they, you know, they talked about God's own people worshiping Yahweh and the gods of the Canaanites. That's how bad it got. That's how they were described. So she is a Canaanite and a woman. Did the rabbis in Bible times spend a lot of time teaching women? No. Women or children. Not, not, they, they just did not. Okay? All right, so. Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Three times when she talks to Christ, she addresses him as Lord. Okay? Any Pharisees or Sadducees, they famous for doing that? No. And not only that, but notice she, she says not only, O Lord, but Son of David. And that is Messiah talk, Messiah language. In other words, the one who is to come as the Son of David. The one who was prophesied to come as the Son of David. We don't know, but we would love to know. Where did she learn this? Where did she pick up on this? She is a Gentile Canaanite woman, but she knew to say, son of David. Now, was she just repeating something she heard? I don't know. Or was she instructed by someone? Was she one of these that we heard of uh, being predicted in the Old Testament who would come and join themselves too? Uh, the Lord's people, all right? We just don't know the answer to that. But she says, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Okay? Now, I can't, I, I don't know why Jesus does not engage her in discussion right away. You can read a ton on this, as you would imagine. There are all kinds of speculation. Why, why did he remain silent? Uh, it's clear that Jesus wants this to play out further, okay? He wants to continue to engage her, and actually, by doing so, we see the great depth of her faith. And it's going to, that's what Jesus is going to marvel at later on. But he is just in his will, lets this play out, okay? He doesn't, doesn't even respond to her. He's just silent, keeps walking. You know, I am not going to help her because I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we think the disciples were saying, oh, just give her what she wants and send her away. Now, why do they want her sent away? She's doing what? She's making a kind of a pest of herself here, and they're kind of withdrawing. You get the idea this is kind of almost R&R time, and oh, here's this woman. And she's, you know, pestering us. And so in other words, just give her what she wants and send her away, okay? 
And notice there, Jesus' response is, he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But by the time he's resurrected and about to ascend, he tells his disciples to go where? Make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And, uh, and uh, just before he ascends, he also says, you know, when they ask him if he's going to restore the kingdom uh, here at this time, he says, no. Uh, you know, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, but stay here in Jerusalem. Uh, you'll receive power on high when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, right? So by that time, it's fully on. But now he's saying, I've only been sent to the house of... Notice, she will not be declined. She will not be refused. And notice again... Verse 27, this doesn't come across in the English so much, but she is not arguing with him here. In other words, she is not saying, oh, yeah, but. She is saying, yes, in, in essence, what she's saying is, yes, Lord, that's true, but even. Notice, notice how she, the humility here. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. In other words, just the crumbs that fall from your children's table who would the children be house of israel i'll take just the crumbs just give me the crumbs that's good enough for me and and again she has such great faith that he will do what she wants or what she is asking i should say then notice what jesus says verse 28 then jesus answered her O woman great is your faith be it done for you as you desire and her daughter was healed instantly. You know, there's only, uh, I was thinking about this, I think there's only one other time that we see Jesus marveling at the faith of someone. And that is, you remember the, when the centurion uh, came and said to Jesus, uh, had uh, a servant who was ill. And <clears throat> again, remember, uh, he said to Jesus, you know, you don't, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but what? Merely say the word, and my servant will be healed. And then Jesus responds, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Here's the other one. Woman, great is your faith. A Roman soldier, Gentile, and a Canaanite woman are the two people that Jesus marvels at their faith. Who should we be expecting that Jesus would marvel at in terms of their faith? Who would you expect that he'd be marveling at? Or should he be marveling at if, if, if things were right? The Jews, especially the religious leaders, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees. Uh, it, it, you would expect that he would be marveling at their faith. But it's a Canaanite woman and a Roman soldier who have great faith. So what does that teach us? It's not by position or standing or church office or any other human measure. It is, we come back, we're gonna do this on the last Sunday of this series, but it is what? Faith alone. And as Jesus pulls a little child in front of him and says, become like this little child, not, you know, a, not lording it over others by your position, 
simply have the faith of a child. That's what's great in the kingdom of God. Not earthly status, not position, not any, any uh, great standing among men, but it's faith that Jesus marvels at, okay? And again, we can't, we can't get over the fact that this is a Canaanite woman. And we don't wanna, don't wanna uh, run past this without also noticing the authority that Jesus has over the demons. Uh, he, doesn't even, he doesn't even have to get near it, you know, go through any incantations or anything. It's just, it's gone. And notice how, uh, how Matthew says, it, the daughter was healed instantly. And that again gives us a, uh, wow, you know, from calming storms on the Sea of Galilee, to casting out demons, to bringing three people back from the dead that we know of, all the other miracles that Jesus did, this one, long distance, we might say, not even, not even having to be there. It's faith, okay? And uh, this, uh, this is not the main point, certainly, but we go to God in prayer and with that same faith, don't we? And we pray that if it be your will, so-and-so be healed, right? And we pray with that same kind of uh, trust and faith uh, in our gracious God. And you see here that that faith uh, is well-founded, okay? But the main point here, Gentile woman. Now, let's just look at a couple other verses. Um, and uh, I want to just turn, it's not on your sheet, but Galatians 3 is probably the most famous, I guess, of, of the doctrine or the passages that, that kind of bring this home. So Galatians 3, if you have a Bible handy there, we're going to look at verse 25 through 29, 25 through 29, Galatians 3, 25 through 29. <clears throat> but now, so the but is, now faith has come. So in other words, you didn't have faith before, now it has come. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That guardian was the law that was referenced earlier. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, is that sexist to say we're all sons of God? Is that just one more example? We better make that children because that's just sexist in the Bible. When the, when the scriptures talk about sons of God, what's the, what's the importance there? If you were a son, what did you have? An inheritance. That's the point. This is not intended to be sexist. You, had an, you were an heir, right? And that, so that's what's the good thing here. And notice there that it's through Christ that we are all sons of God through faith. For as many, as, you, as, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Great passage there also. It's not what we're talking about here necessarily, but that baptism creates faith. It's through baptism that you come and are joined to Christ through faith, okay? You are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. In the sense, we have put on his righteousness. We are clothed in his righteousness. Now, here, look at verse 28, though. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what happens to all social uh, or ethnic 
um, any other types of distinctions when it, when it comes to Christ. In Christ, we are all what? One. Those he says there is no distinction. Those fall away. Okay? So there is, and the one, of course, we're focused on is there is neither Jew nor Greek. Right? And whereas the Jews might want to say, you know, we were here first. This goes back to the, uh, the parable of the vineyard, right? We were here first. We deserve it. Uh, you know, it's just not fair to give them the same, these Johnny-come-latelys in the vineyard, the same thing that, that we're getting, right? And uh, no, that we are all one, okay, in Christ Jesus. No distinctions there. Notice there's not men or women. And again, this flies in the face of the core of the men and the core of the women, that we are all one in Christ. Those distinctions have been done away with. And we don't want to forget, uh, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So what is it that makes us a child of Abraham or a son of Abraham? Is it that I am born ethnically a Jew? Is that what does it? What makes us children of Abraham, children of the promise? By faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. We are all, from that sense, children of Abraham by faith in the promise, and in this place, the promise fulfilled in Christ, okay? And, uh, you know, for any doing evangelism with someone who is uh, ethnically Jewish but not a Christian, this is a great place to start, that it's not just ethnicity. In fact, ethnicity doesn't matter in the sight of God. It is simply faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's it. Um, now, uh, just real quickly, let's turn back to John chapter 10, and then we'll get to the epistle lesson. John chapter 10, and I want to look at verse uh, 16. John 10, verse 16. This is the great chapter where Jesus is, uh, speaks of himself as the shepherd and a good shepherd, and we as his sheep. Okay? And to many... Uh, at that time, it, they would have been fine if it were the Jews he was talking about. The Jews would have been just fine uh, talking about there in the, in the sheep pen or the sheep pulled together. But notice what he says in verse 16. Uh, he's talking about this. Uh, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Okay? So these other sheep out there that he has to bring in, obviously, too, includes Gentiles. And we're all one flock together. We are not separate flocks, okay? No distinctions. Now, let's just, uh, I hate to do this, but let me just say for a second, what is it in us that causes us to make distinctions like this? What is it in us? We do it, too. We'll get to that in a second. But what is it? that causes us to make distinctions and think that we have, we're up here and somebody else is down here. What, what ultimately is that? Sinful pride, isn't it? It's that old sinful nature that lives inside of me still, unfortunately, to this day, even after we are called to faith, and still I want to think to myself that there must be something special about me that makes me better than somebody else. I'm convinced that's what makes us uh, gossip about other people, right? It makes us feel better that 
that's not, oh, you wouldn't believe what they're doing. Of course, I don't do that. It, it's that same old thing that's inside of us that's, uh, that wants us to, uh, you know, to tell ourselves that there's something better about me than you. And I'm, you know, I'm uh, up here and you're down here. And that's those distinctions, okay? Now, let's not just talk about a couple thousand years ago. How today, maybe even unknowingly at some times, do we in, it's not here at St. Paul's, this doesn't happen here at St. Paul's, but in other churches, how can we even unknowingly send that same kind of message with maybe our actions or sometimes even what we say to other people? How do we do that? Can you think of any examples? Ignoring other people, right? You ever do that when you go, uh, we've done that on vacation before, we go to another church, a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Congregation, walk in, you know, nobody knows us, and instead of greeting us and how are you, where are you from, everybody's in their little circles, right? Little cliques. So you take your bulletin, you go in, you sit down, and the service is over, and you come out, and guess where they all are again? In their little cliques. After all, it's been an hour since they got to talk to each other. And I'm not saying, now, it is only natural for us to go to people that we are familiar with and we know and so on, but we're in effect saying that, what are we saying about this, this body of Christ here? This is primarily for us, right? We don't even, it's like you don't even exist. You just kind of walk on through, don't bother us, we won't bother you, okay? I'm thinking of another one that's, um, again, not here at St. Paul's, but only other places. Anybody think of another one? Sometimes, when new people come into the church, and we've been here for at least 50 years. In fact, our grandparents were charter members of this congregation. We can at times maybe even unknowingly, even just by an attitude or ignoring someone or not taking what they say to have value as though, you know, again, we're up here, you're down here, uh, you know, in about 20 years or so, we might, we might listen to what you have to say, right? So I say these things that there is just this in us, it seems, uh, as humans, that makes us want to think this way. And it's interesting, when God's people came out of, the, when they were conquered by uh, Babylon and came through that and came back to the promised land, they had been idolatrous before. In fact, they had been so inclusive way over-inclusive, but the trouble was they went over to the other side in a large extent. Then they come back from their captivity, and except for a little blip on the screen where they're intermarrying again, and Ezra has to come back, and they have to undo all these marriages. Boy, that was a mess. And, but then they, they go into the ditch on the other side of the road, and they get so exclusive that they think that God is, they've got their own, you know, God is just for them and not for anybody else. It's, it's kind of interesting how they went from one ditch to the other, and both of them are not where God wants them to be, right? He wants to be their God, but he, wants, he also wants to be everyone's God, right? He's not just a, he's not just a, a uh, cult God of, of the Israelites. He is the God of all creation. And that's what, unfortunately, a lot of them didn't see post-exile for some reason. Uh, it'd be an interesting uh, kind of study as to how they got there, how they got to that point of thinking. 
And so we want to be careful, too, that we don't take on any characteristics that would say to others, he's our God, he's not yours, he's ours, right? Just the opposite. We want all to come in. All right, with that, we better move on to the epistle lesson. We've got uh, about 10 minutes left. And this is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Now, this is the one that for those listening over KFUO, you will not hear it probably in your congregation next Sunday because this is the one we changed for our specific sermon series this Sunday on Christ alone. Okay, let's read through this and then we'll go back and get as far as we can. Starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you want you who uh, sorry who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who was who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay? So, this, uh, again, dealing here with contention, trouble, conflict between Jews and Gentiles inside the Christian congregation in Ephesus, okay? We'll go through this a little bit quickly because of time. Therefore, now, what has Paul just said? We know this verse almost by heart as Lutherans, I think. In uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul has said, it is by grace that you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not because of works, lest any man should boast. And then in verse 10, he talks about how God has created good works that we should walk in them, right? He's, he's got these good works out there. We walk in them after he has already saved us and called us to faith. So verse 11 builds on that. Therefore, in other words, since all of that is true, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. That was just a term of derision that the Jews used when re referencing Gentiles. The uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision or the Jews. So again, there, there was this back and forth. A circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. See, Paul's point here is circumcision is just an outward thing. And it's made by human hands. It's not made by God. And it's not an eternal thing like baptism creates. 
Uh, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, they, they were outside of God's people. Strangers to the covenants, they didn't know anything about the covenant with Abraham or any of that. They were outside all of that, uh, having no hope and without God in the world. You know, when I was reading that yesterday, I was thinking to myself, isn't that, couldn't we say that that is the same description today for anyone who is outside of faith in Jesus Christ? Anyone who is outside God's vineyard, to go back to that uh, vineyard uh, parable, the workers in the vineyard. Uh, there is, there is, uh, they, they are strangers to the covenants of promise, no hope and without God. In other words, uh, it is not that God has abandoned them, not in that sense, but they are without what God would have them have in their lives. So Paul is saying here, that's the way you were Gentiles, okay? And verse uh, 12, I'm sorry, 13, but now, so there's that, here's the contrast. Now, in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off, in other words, you were always considered far off, have brought near. And what brings us near to God? The blood of Christ. It's only the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. It's only through that that we have uh, been brought near, that everything is right with us, that wall of hostility between us and God has been broken down. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, who once were far brought near by the blood of Christ, for he, Christ himself, is our peace. Okay? Pastor Smith referenced that again today in the sermon. Remember, uh, Jesus says to his disciples on Monday, Thursday evening, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And that peace doesn't necessarily mean at all, doesn't mean at all actually, that you're not going to have problems in this world. You're not going to have terrible things happen to you in this world. But even in the midst of those things, there is a sense of peace, a calm, a confidence, a comfort that all is right between us and God. And that's a peace that, again, only Christ can bring. So that's, that's again, referenced there. He is our peace. So it's not that he just brings this. He is it. He embodies it for us. Okay? And notice going on, he made us both one. So Jews and Gentiles are now one, uh, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So that by his sacrifice on the cross, that, that wall is almost an image here of a wall between Jews and Gentiles. And that wall is called a wall of hostility for good reason. There was a lot of hostility. You know, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the Jews, when they would go to the market, and Jesus references this in Mark, and says they would not eat, or Mark references it, they would not eat uh, when they came home from the marketplace unless they washed their cups and bowls. And uh, one of the manuscripts, uh, a couple of manuscripts also have their, their beds even, their couches. Why were the Jews washing all these things off and making sure that they went through ceremonial washings with special uh, uh, procedures that you would follow? Were they sort of germaphobes and were worried that the marketplace was full of germs and they better really wash their hands? What were they washing their hands and all these things off in case what? A Gentile touched those things. That's how bad it was. That's, you think of hostility between two? That's, that's just a sample of what it was. Okay, So that wall has been broken down now and going on, uh, finishing off, 
abolishing the law of, of commandments and, and all the ordinance that separated them one from another. Uh, verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body. So reconciling us both Jews and Gentiles to God. Notice in one body, at one church, through the cross, the cross again, killing the hostility, not only between Jews and Gentiles, but between us and God. And he, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access. Notice in verse 18, we've got the triune God there. Through him, Christ, we have both access in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. You've got all three persons of the Trinity mentioned right there in that verse, okay? And Jews and Gentiles now, no distinction. We all have this access to the Father through the Spirit, through Christ, okay? And then finally, we are uh, one building here. And who is the cornerstone of this building? That we're, the image of the building of the church, the church as a building here. Who is the cornerstone? Christ is. What was special about the cornerstone? First stone laid in the building process, uh, usually. We, ha we still do this today. It's more ceremonially. We have a cornerstone laying uh, program and uh, a service. And the cornerstone would, as it's described, go in the corner. And the lines, the walls going out from the cornerstone would take their line from that stone. So what happens if you get the cornerstone uh, off? What happens to the rest of the building? Whole building's off, right? And so you got, you got things all, all uh, skew. And this is just, again, one way of saying that as a church, we, uh, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the teachings of the, and the preaching of the apostles and prophets. But Christ is the cornerstone. He is the one from whom we all uh, are, are taking our direction and uh, take our foundation from him. And he is extending that through the preaching and the teaching of the apostles. And now we today are in that building as well. We're blocks in that building, you might say, living stones. I think we've got that here. Yes, living stones uh, being built into that same wall, okay, same building. All right, we will conclude uh, at this point. Our thanks to our KFU audience for listening today. Thanks to all of you here. Let's close with the benediction then. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.